Hello, ladies and gents. I'm super excited to be back on the show with the two special guests from the world of EdTech. One of our guests is from Brazil and one of from Argentina. They have been paving the way to make sure that Latin America is able to fulfill its demand as a talent hub. There is a lot of demand from international corporations, startups, and from local incumbents and startups alike. But there is not just enough educational schools that are able to elevate the levels of these people over here to be able to 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 contribute into their companies. So, Baldista, who do we have as a guest to, for today? We're going to have Federico Hernandez, co-founder of Henry, and we're going to have Fabio Muniz, the founder of Awari, two companies that went through YC a couple of years back, and they're going to share their perspective between edtech and traditional education. What does the job market look like today in LATAM? What is, how do they get the feedback from both users and companies, and how does the future look for edtech in Latin America? So let's get into it. Welcome to the Find the Way podcast. In this show, we will try to explore what is happening in emerging markets and how entrepreneurs, investors, and communities are simply finding the way to make phenomenal things happen, regardless how volatile the environment may sometimes seem. Guys, could you give us a little intro to who you are and then to the audience, you know, in the, in the region? You are pretty known names. You're playing an important role of making sure that the continent, the the game has enough players to fulfill the demand of making technology companies, you know, bigger on a global scale. But folks that are listening, let's say outside of Latin America, they might have no idea who you are, even though you go to YC, also in Europe, people just don't follow the YC batches so closely, um, even though you're household names in certain circles over here. So could you please give a little little bit of background of who you who you are? Well, my name is Federico. I'm a net tech entrepreneur. I've been yeah, having entrepreneur ventures in, in education for the last 10 years. I've started my first company. When I was in my last year of the university, I'm economics bachelor, um, where we basically train train people in public in, in, in let's say public speaking skills we realized that was not scalable then we founded with my co-founder uh, our first really tech company that was blended and now we rebranded that company it's called Fidu that's basically a communication platform for schools k-12 schools and a fintech solution for schools also for collect the payments from from parents. And in 2020, uh, we started Henry with Martin, Luz, and, and the team. That's basically a tech school where we provide different boot camps in coding, data, AI, um, where we train people for zero upfront cost and in exchange of a share of their future income once they land uh, the first job in tech. So that's uh, a little bit in 30 seconds, my tech experience. And so you've been playing the game for for a while and been going the ups and downs and now contributing quite well, especially that what I witnessed over here in Argentina, that a lot of folks, we, we've interviewed people also into our own teams about, you know, folks who have been going through your program. So it's at least the word in the street seems to be relatively okay. People don't hate you guys yet. Um, and you're doing something valuable to the ecosystem. So Yeah, and it's interesting because both of the companies we've been operating in Pan America, so basically from Mexico to Argentina. So I think it's a great compliment with Fabi that it's from Brazil to talk about all the, the region. Uh, so as you were telling, now we have 6K graduates and more than 10K active students in 
in Henry and in Fidu, we have more than 3,000 schools around the region. So it's uh, impressive growth in most of the, the companies in these 10 years. Fantastic. Yeah. And from here, we can jump on to Fabio. I, I have been in, in tech for a long time and I've been in now in education for a few years, but my background starts in tech. I spent uh, a good chunk of time doing design work, uh, UX and UI design, as well as product management work for a number of sort of YC, VC-backed startups in the Bay Area. Um, I've done work for larger enterprise customers as well. I've worked with the Google Cloud team, with NBCU, Viacom, and lots of sort of other larger companies. I did that for, for a while in 2014-ish, maybe 2015-ish, I started uh, doing some work around um, just teaching design, um, started mentoring people. That was when we had sort of the, the boom of General Assembly and, and other General Assembly copycats in a way. So it was kind of easy for someone um, from outside of an academic background to start teaching as well. So that's what I did. And I, I taught design for a few years, uh, mentored a bunch of people in early 2018, put together a design course in Portuguese, um, very similar to what I was used to teaching in English in the US. Um, that worked pretty well. I think it grew a lot more than I expected it would. When the pandemic hit in 2020, it was obvious that there was a really large opportunity here to do more than just one course. Um, and uh, we went through YC, raised the seed round, and then just spent the next, uh, the following few years just growing that brand. Um, but that's the, the, the short story of how I ended up doing work in education. Nice. And, and then compared to, to Soy Henry, your, your current markets, the geographical scope is what exactly? And is your business model similar to what Soy Henry is? That, you know, the, the Soy Henry does not have any upfront cost. And then there is a percentage, correct me if I'm wrong, Federico, but you have you take, let's say, yeah. a, a percentage of the future earnings of the people who graduate your school. Not really. I think we're very complimentary. Um, in, in, in terms of geographical um, focus, we were entirely focused on Brazil. So all of our students are sort of Brazilians, personally speaking. Um, our model is essentially you sign up for an annual membership and you just get access to however many cohort-based courses you want to sign up for. So let's say you're a designer, you can sign up for this four-week uh, course where someone who works, who, who's uh, head of re user research at Newbank, they'll teach you uh, the ins and outs of user research. So you kind of go through that course and you can do a bunch of these throughout the year. Uh, uh, so someone might as well go they, they might go through Henry, get a job, and then sign up for Wari and just continuously learn how to get better at those jobs. And, and so it's, I think it's complimentary in that way. Okay, cool. And how have you evolved now into this, into this game? You know, you've been existing for not too long in the market. And the further we have been exploring the region of Latin America, we see that these are humongous gaps what comes into into knowledge and, and capabilities to help these huge boom of technology companies that are being popping up into the region for a while. And just to like give a little bit of context and background on what we have been experiencing as well with Bautista and our team is that when we do comparisons to Europe or the US, there's still a lot of folks over here that are entering the world of startups, are playing the game in the world of technology. There is a huge knowledge gap and experience gap. They have not been playing the game for so long. There is not you know, there has not been enough supply of companies, let's say we look even a time horizon of 10 years. So now the huge gap, how, what, what are you seeing in the market? Um, what has been going on since you initiated and how, what, what are your overall take on, on, on the level of education um, in Latin America currently? Um, it's just 
I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion because we got started doing something very similar to what Henry does, which is, I don't know if you guys are still doing the traditional ISAs or if you have your own uh, model for, for just uh, working with students. But we, we started off uh, with that thesis and, and then it kind of became obvious to us that it wasn't the thesis that um, we did not believe in that thesis and there seemed to be a lot of risk and, and um, just we weren't super confident in that. So we uh, started exploring and then we, we focused on sort of lifelong learning and helping people learn throughout their careers. That's what we're sort of focused on. But yeah, I think this, this will be definitely a good area for, for discussion. Yeah, so, so, so basically, yeah, we, we have like the more traditional ISA model where no upfront cost. You, you go through an admission process. You have to make a, what we call the Henry Challenge. You have sometimes interviews. And then you go through the bootcamp. You have a um, project-based program on what we call the labs. Then we match you with a career coach that will help you navigate the storm of landing your first job in, in tech, basically. And we have also all the partnership team that works closely with companies to understand what are those the needs of those companies in terms of technology so that we can adjust our curriculum and at the same time offering them our, our graduates cohorts in order to to placement. So mm -hmm. basically what, what we've been working in these um, last few months and years is how we can create this model that, as, as Fabio was saying, looks uh, from the outside really risky in terms of how you're going to place those people, how you're going to ensure that they pay you back. So basically working um, with machine mod machine learning models and LLMs in how we can predict uh, those applicants in terms of which of those applicants are really going to end up being tech professionals, right? So today yeah. we have an admission rate of around 2% of the applicants that come to our door every single month. And that's basically because of these um, different data points that we create among the admission process, uh, not only the technical aspect of the student, but also like the way they interact, the way they fill different forms. And, and we create that score that allow us to have 90% accuracy in students that are actually going to land the job in tech. Um, so that's what we were working in order to reduce risks and of course, all the quality of education project base and the community itself that's all the time fostering more growth and bringing new students. So basically, uh, they're working with their peers in order to make this model, uh, grow in, in, in the region. How much and of your model relies on the actual job market? Um, like some of it as the actual student and their skills and their soft skills and their hard skills and whether you can qualify them or not. But there's obviously, you know, are there jobs available for these people? Do you take that into your ML model account? And like, how would you? Yeah, well, yeah we take that into account in terms of um, what we see is that what changes is not the, let's say, the job post uh, on LinkedIn that companies searching for tech junior or junior advanced talent, what we see is that the profile of the companies are changing. Basically, when we had the hype in 2020, 2021, we saw a lot of uh, startups, tech companies uh, hiring our graduates. Now we have like the same um, placement rates, but what have changed is the, the companies. I mean, we see more incumbents, we see more consulting companies, uh. we see more... Um, 
let's say, software factories, basically because mm-hmm. all these other companies and startups in, in, in a scenario where they don't know how much money they will raise or how the market will move, they prefer not to have a, a heavy lift in terms of uh, internal steam. So they are leveraging that with software factories, consulting companies. So what we see is that those are the companies now hiring our grads. But in terms of uh, placement, we see the, the same skill gap between the job post and, and the talent that is getting into the market every, every year. So, Fede, you have seen this change in the last couple of years with the tech layoffs. That's what you're saying, basically, that yeah. we had a lot of Latin Americans that were hired. They were, the American companies were outsourcing developer work to Latin American workers. And you had, you have seen that change. And now who is hiring Latin American companies or is it still American companies outsourcing? Well, we saw a, a grow on, on the U.S. companies or European companies hiring people from all around Latin America, basically because since they have less funding or they need to be more efficient in the way they manage their constructor, uh, but they don't want to lose efficiency delivering features. So they need to create the same with less money. So the, uh, an interesting way of doing that is hire people in a remote way from Latin to the US or Europe. So here you can hire three engineers for the same price that you will hire an engineer in the Bay Area. So when all these hiring freeze and tech layoffs started, um, what we saw is that the, the Latin American companies, maybe they freeze a little bit, but the US and European companies started looking much more uh, for the chief talent in, in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And how do you work on the other side of the equation? So for the companies, do you have partnership also for you, Fabio? The question is, are you setting these partnerships with companies in LATAM, in Europe, in the US to ensure that there is this uh, channel, this flow of talent going to them? Yeah, uh, we have the, uh, more than 2,000 companies uh, hiring Henry's uh, with I would say 50 to 100, we have a close relationship with them. They'll be like the big tech companies from Latin America, consulting firms and software companies um, where we work every single month. They telling us, okay, we hired this student. We need to change this curriculum because now we are seeing that AI has a really strong uh, aspect of how we, we want developers to code. So we adapted our curriculum more for prompt AI engineers. Uh, so yeah, we have this relationship with, I would say, 50 to 100 companies in the region in the U.S. and more than 2,000 hiring and risk. Um, we're a lot less focused on job placement numbers because most students come to us not necessarily looking for a job. They, they're employed and they're looking to learn specific skills or um, get access to our networks. So for us, the relationships we foster with companies is a lot more in terms of, okay, maybe we're going to run a workshop within this one large bank and we'll invite some of our mentors or some of our community members to be a part of that workshop and just uh, foster um, knowledge sharing and collaboration there. Um, early on, we did have a number of sort of job placement focused partnerships, but as we've shifted towards more lifelong, uh, 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 more focused approach on lifelong learning, I think that's where most of our focus has been. And and how do you gather this feedback on 
the courses that you're teaching, the careers that you're teaching? Uh, do you have this ongoing relationship with companies just for the feedback or is it only the students telling you guys? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, I think there's a lot, I mean, this is a, again, it's a very deep, uh, it's an unsolved problem. Uh, but for, for areas like language learning, let's say you're teaching English to someone, um, there are pedagogical ways of sort of measuring whether they're actually learning the language or not, because it's kind of easy to tell if well, they have learned the language or not. So one way, one way for you to do that is you, you just get people tested or you get people to go through an assessment throughout their language learning, uh, journey. Uh, and as they're progressing, uh, you'll, you know, they'll, they'll progressively score better results on that standardized test. Um, you can then, you know, you can, you can really work with sort of standardized approaches to testing. It's very easy to evaluate whether they're getting proficient at specific language or not. So, um, there are lots of really good hypotheses for how do you actually measure, uh, whether your education is effective or not within, um, a language learning uh, environment. It's not as obvious for teaching people, which would be uh, um, for, for when you're teaching uh, UI design or, or front-end engineering or UX research or mm -hmm. any specific tech skills. There isn't a super clear-cut way for you to measure whether they're really good developers or not. There are things like lead code uh, tests or like there are things along those lines. And so we're trying to incorporate those things throughout our learning journey to measure um, actual, you know, learning effectiveness. But I think it's very much open um, and it, 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 uh, it definitely varies between, you know, the, the way you test um, um, learning or stickiness for software engineers is a lot different than the way you test uh, for product management. And so uh, we have to, in a way, fragment the way we run um, pedagogical evaluation throughout our stack. And that just kind of makes things a bit, a bit more complex, but it's a very good question. It's definitely, definitely a big challenge for, for everyone in the space. That's great. Thanks for the answer, Fabio. I, I would like to ask a bit more, shifting a bit the topic towards uh, comparing edtech with traditional education. Basically, how do you see yourself compared to these traditional education that we've had throughout the years? Do you see as competitors? Do you see as compliments? Go first. Yeah. So they come on. Probably you can go. No, no, no. It's a tough one. So you should want to. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. tough one. <laughs> so I like it. I like the style. You know, it's just. I try to avoid the conflict. I'll say that let's talk about education, traditional education or ed tech. Uh, you can bring the conflict I... to the table. That makes it even yeah, more provocative. Yeah, we want the That's why I asked. You know, if we, if we want, want to put this in, uh, the better marketing we can get, the more provocative <laughs> you guys get. So it's like, yes. I have a lot of follow-up questions, so I would like to stay on the topic. So, so basically, what I, what I see, I'll talk about Henry, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the industry as a whole. So basically, mm -hmm. Henry, we see as a complement to universities. There are a lot of uh, examples around the globe that universities and boot camps uh, work together in order to provide a better um, service or end product for, for students. I think a great example in the U.S. is uh, Geology that partnered with more than 40 universities and sold the company to, to you. Uh, basically because um, the universities have a certain structure and way of um, structuring curriculum, how much they, lock, they last all the programs. And we 
coding boot camps, for example, you have more than job. I, I, when we go back to the question that you were talking previously with Fabio, right? We have all the insights from labor market, from the companies. Mm -hmm. What are the most uh, demanded skills in the field? Uh, we can create curriculums based on project base, um, based on how you work with other peers, real projects, not only like theory um, and in a short, intense period of time. So there are a lot of universities working on partnering with different uh, tech schools as Henry in, in the globe. And we are starting to work with a lot of universities in Latin America to provide this uh, six months, for example, experience for their students. Students are, have already finished the university or even together we can expand the university traditional time, let's say, because now they can go after other type of students with partners with, with bootcamp. So basically, Henry, I said like a, a complement with these traditional universities and higher education, right? But when you go to the industry, uh, it depends on which vertical you are talking because EdTech had a lot, right? You can say software, hardware, services. We are talking about B2B or B2C. So it depends on which segment we want to focus. If there's really uh, competition or complement among uh, both of the traditional edu education and ed techs, right? So Henry, we, we see us as a complement to traditional education in universities and a really good opportunity for those who haven't had the chance to go to university in Latin America. Only 14% of the population have access to, to universities. So we are a really good alternative for all that other people who didn't have the chance to have a really high quality education for zero upfront cost and end up landing a, a job, right? And, and over there, just a, just a quick question over there in between is that you mentioned only 14% get access to formal universities. Is that whole Latin America? What do you, what do you mean by that? And why is the number that low? Yeah, it's whole Latin America. Yeah, uh, okay. when you see like the six six hundred million people we have in in the older countries, the average is only fourteen percent have access to universities. Um, I think it depends on, on every single country has their own particularities, but basically, um, there are a lot of people who are not being able to finish high school, so those are not able to go to to the university. Basically in Argentina in the last few years, we have 50% dropout in high school, right? So 50% of people started high school. Yeah, they didn't finish the high school. So you, they cannot go through a formal university system. And then you have a lot of problems in terms of cost access. I mean, Argentina have uh, public education, it's free, but for people who live in certain cities that they don't have universities, they need to move to a city, they need to rent an apartment, they need to get the books and they don't have that money because the income, the, the average salary in Latin America is really low. So their families cannot provide and you don't have access to a loan industry. And that was actually our first thesis in Henry. We would just wanted to create a loan company, a fintech company uh... to provide loans for people uh, studying in tech. And we realized that we needed to have the relationship with the students. And that's why we end up creating a whole model from admissions, education, and then the fintech aspect. Uh, but, but basically, it's because of access, cost, and because they're not a strong um, K-12 education uh, in, in Latin America. 
And it's the same, Fabio, in Brazil. Um, We've had a lot of public policy around access to traditional higher education. Uh, there was a thing called FIAS, uh, and it might be coming back soon, but that was essentially the government. The short version is the government was um, providing access to loans at really attractive interest rates. Students could sign up for those loans and then uh, attend universities. Uh, problem was, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, any, lots of low quality universities sort of took advantage of those loans for easy cash flow without delivering high quality education. Mm -hmm. So the whole mm -hmm. thing became a problem. You had really high default rates and um, you, you went away. It might be coming back, but um, I think we have very similar challenges in Brazil as part of LATAM. Uh, you still have really low graduation rates. You have really high dropout uh, rates and even high school, right? High school graduation rates aren't incredible here. So um, yeah, I think we have similar problems and they're largely aggravated by the fact that, you know, you don't have that many people actually going to college and college still mostly is bad, right? It's mostly bad. You have maybe a few really high quality colleges and then just a lot of low quality colleges um, or more traditional institutions. And that's just kind of, you know, exacerbates the problem. So unless you're going to maybe a top, a tier five or top, top five university, you're mostly, most likely wasting your time and not everyone even gets that chance. So yeah, similar situation. Do you think also flexibility is a thing that could affect students? Uh, as Fede mentioned, a lot of people drop high school. We don't know why exactly, but it could be that these people need to go to work for some reason because they don't have the means to, to get, uh, you know, they don't have the money to get by the end of the month. So do you think the flexibility that you guys offer could make it easier for these people? that cannot go just four, four hours, six hours to a university? It's, it's sort of hard. Uh, it's a hard question because usually if you're in a position where you're not able to finish high school because you have to go to work and you can't afford to pay your bills, you're not in a position to you know, have internet access and a laptop and sign up for our mm -hmm. products. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're our target audience. Uh, we don't really, we don't really tackle those folks and I don't think we're, yeah. uh, we have a, we have a product, a built to help those, uh, those, those people. But, uh, I do think that there's an angle where, uh, there's room for potentially an additional, uh, player in the education space to, to focus on that one, uh, specific audience. Um, I do think that, uh, it is sort of fairly more complex than, than, than something that we can just kind of fix with, uh, with, uh, with a SaaS platform or something, but, uh, uh, yeah, there's room there absolutely to, to add value. In Henry, we also, we don't have a product for people who don't finish high school. We need for them to, to finish high school, basically because we need them to get a job and none of companies actually check that. Maybe the companies are not uh, after traditional university degrees. They are focused on your skills. Uh, but they need you to finish high school. So our products also focus on people who finish high school. Maybe we have a little bit more flexible structure in terms of cost so that people that don't have the money can access the, the program. And now we make some changes in our program that on the early days was only full-time program. We designed a flex option for those who are working and yet they want to switch their careers and they need to go through a bootcamp program, for example, uh, but they don't have the time. 
Uh, so we designed the solution zero upfront cost and with a flexible time structure so we can act and give access to more people. Yeah, but the, as Fabio was saying, I think it's a problem that's much bigger than education, right? It's a huge problem, root problems that we need to, to fix. And I think it, it, it also ties, um, it comes back to a really large question. So you have sort of education and you have sort of ad tech. And when we say ad tech, we're usually referring to uh, companies that raised venture funding and at some point want to reach venture skill and venture skill outcomes. And they can be an IPO, it can be a really large exit, um, but those are different uh, things. Um, it's very hard for you to apply a traditional um, uh, a traditional venture scale playbook to education. Uh, lots of ad techs try to do that, but like that's hard, it's not easy. Um, and so if you look at education companies or ad techs that reached scale, most of the venture scale ad techs, they're, you know, they're stepping into the entertainment piece as well. Uh, there are very few ad techs that reached venture scale Whilst keeping in mind, you know, actual more hardcore educational, we'll use that yeah. term kind of loosely, but um, uh, the, the, you know, actually tracking skill development, uh, like that's like, that's very hard to do at venture skills. And so the more you sort of have to make decisions and choices to reach certain levels of scale and revenue, um, the uh, maybe the, the further and further away you go from, all right, maybe we have a problem here, which is some people, they're not even finishing high school. And they have, you know, they have a hard time comprehending text. So the more it, it's very hard to, you know, fix this whilst actually delivering venture returns. And like, that's one of the major challenges that the whole ad text space kind of faces. Well, what, what do you mean? Can you clarify a little bit over there that a lot of yeah. the ad tags are not really fitting into the expectations of or, or, or the game of venture funding? Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you exactly mean by that? Well, um, we can use a few examples. Maybe the, if you look at public benchmarks, um, you have, for example, Udemy, right? That's a public benchmark, Udemy stock. It's currently trading at, uh, what's their market cap? 1.6 billion market cap. Um, that's in a 25 year history. Um, that's not great, right? That's not, that's not great. The, the, a great, uh, what, a, 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 a public. Uh, benchmark for the ad tech space mm -hmm. being worth 1.6 billion after 25 years. That's not, that's not incredible. If you look at Udemy, even then, if you look at Udemy, um, is that really an education company or is that more of a marketplace? Like, do you actually mm. go to Udemy to, for, for an education purpose or are you improve you specific? It's kind of entertainment. You just buy a lot of courses and you watch some of those and sure you learn new yeah. things, but you also learn new things, uh, watching YouTube videos. And so. The more you try to reach this level of skill, which in the education space is hard anyway, uh, the more you sort of have to, you know, move away from actually tracking or people learning specific topics on each one. Because the problem is, the really big problem is um, you have one layer. So you have maybe the um, um, society should improve on things. Mm -hmm. And that's very few people finishing high school. It's a poor education system. It's people not having access to money or the resources to study. Like this is okay. We should fix this as a society, right? Okay, cool. And then you have another layer of challenges, which are for software engineering, for example, and what Henry does and what we do sort of, 
you only have like so a certain percentage of the population who's willing to spend like six months debugging stuff on Stack Overflow. Um, and that's like another layer that makes it hard to reach like public uh, stock level of scale uh, doing like actual education. It's, Udemy doesn't really care if someone's spending six or eight months on Stack Overflow. No one uses Stack Overflow anymore. Everyone's doing ChatGPT. But no, Udemy doesn't care about that. Henry does. And we used to. We, we don't anymore because we're focused on we're moving towards this direction. But like that makes it hard to do this type of education at scale. Yeah, and, okay. and also when when you see these big companies in education, uh, they're not focusing one single problem. You What you usually see when you go out of this Udemy that, as far as you will say, it's more like a marketplace. Okay. You see these huge education conglomerates that have a bunch of solutions in a bunch of different verticals and all of them bring some revenue to achieve scale, right? For example, in Brazil, you have uh, different groups, let's say Arco, that had some few news these last weeks, but Arco has uh, different revenue streams in a bunch of different verticals in education. So it's hard to get scale uh, when you focus in one single problem and one single type of product. Uh, you need to, because of the second layer and the scale you get in that second layer, you need to bring up a more broad uh, solution and product to the market in order to to achieve scale. And 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 this is even worse when you analyze the unicorn status, right? Because when you see the unicorns you have in education, they're almost, I would say 95% of them in just three markets. So it's um, the US, China, and India. So basically when you try to create these huge education companies outside and big market with the same rules, with the same currency, with the same cultures or whatever, it's hard and you need to bring a lot of different pieces to your solution to achieve the same uh, amount of scale. So that creates a more an even more complex uh, discussion for founders when they try to scale is, okay, we need to move to new markets or we need to bring more products or how are we going to reach that scale that a U.S. company can get only focusing in the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's a really good article called Education is a Process of Becoming Everything You Hate. It's a, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, startups or the venture world or public It's just Education is a process of becoming everything you hate. It's a great article. It's written by a teacher. Um, and he kind of describes his journey of, you know, maybe his first uh, semester as a teacher was, I am I'm not assigning homework with this, you know, long question that's highly descriptive. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll read questions and they're like, hey, I need you to do this assignment and deliver it in a Word file on a 12, uh, 12, you know, 12 pixels font size and it should be just fine. It should be like this and then that. You have like very dumb look sounding questions. And it's like, I'm not doing that, right? So the first semester, he just doesn't, that, he doesn't do that. And, you know, maybe he has a class of 30 students and 29 students will just do it fine. And we'll, but there's one student, you know, guys an asshole who just delivered the worst possible homework. And then the teacher's boss is like, mate, you can't have a student doing that type. And just progressively happens. Like you have very, you have some people just you know, focusing on on specific things that uh, sound kind of obvious, but in a day they're they're not so obvious. And after a few years of doing that, you just have like the dumb sounding questions. It's a really good article, and it kind of it kind of describes some of the challenges. Uh, if you have a playbook that works well in China, you try to copy and paste that in India, it breaks. 
and you have a model that works well in India, try to copy and paste, paste that in all the time, it breaks. Uh, and it just keeps breaking all the time because people are different, cultures are different, societies are different. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. reaching venture scale requires like local teams doing work and local teams deploying budgets and deploying capital to figure out what those exceptions are and fixing those exceptions. The problem is if you have local teams for Goldman Sachs, there's just a lot of money. If you have local teams selling courses in education, like there's not that much money to justify the amount of budget and capital yeah, you have yeah. to allocate. So it just makes the thing harder. Um, uh, doesn't mean that there are no, um, there are no upsides. So definitely you, if you crack these things, uh, you'll see really good returns. And you have examples. You have like Cambly, great example. They've done this. They've ran in playbook. Great company, incredible company, super valuable. Crappily, another great example. Yeah, right? yeah. So you have folks who've actually captured the returns after going through the the effort, but it, it is effort. It's a lot of effort. And, and from there, for 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 you you two, are you making any money, or are you your investors now with the whip going after you two and 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 screaming and demanding more results? No, we. I, I think that that's always a part of it, but we're now sort of, we have really good EBITDA margins. You know, I've learned what that means in the past few years. So that's, <laughs> Congrats that's that. more, yes, I've learned what that means. Great. I'm very happy. So we're now, so our North Star KPI really is, you know, how much EBITDA are we actually um, uh, delivering here? And so we're, optim we're optimizing for, for that end of day. Um, I think our investors are happy with that as well. And, and Fede? Yeah, I'm from our side. We are we're not break even yet, but uh, we are growing in terms of revenue. and We optimize our operation in order to to become profitable this year. And I think that's a uh, some. Um, I think that Latin American founders have that you're always thinking about um, how you cost structure is going to work, how you're going to optimize your operation, your product, your technology, because. We are not used to all these growth capital that the U.S. founders always had. So from day one, you just start thinking, okay, maybe I got a huge round, but this is not going to last forever. So we've been focusing on our optimizing our model, our technology, and our constructor uh, from day one. So we are pretty well in that aspect too. Absolutely. And so what is your ballpark uh, revenue right now? You don't need to give an exact number if you want to be a little more vague, but at least a little ballpark. Uh, what are what are your and your revenues? Are, yeah, like... so so basically, we we got probably end up with six million revenue. Um, it's a, almost a three x growth, so that's uh, pretty well for for a three year ad tech company, right? Mm -hmm. Congrats on that, and Fabio. We we don't share those numbers. You don't yeah. share those numbers. <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't. The audience yeah, is demanding. They're craving it. We're gonna get a lot of. Last time I did that was like a couple of years ago, and a journalist got it wrong, and it's been wrong their life ever since. I'm just like, ever careful. since. Yeah. So so yeah, we just about to, we gotta look it up the old number from two years ago and just use it. Yeah. We use public pressure. Fabio, we'll just a hundred x that number if that's fine. Yes. Great. Yes. <laughs> um, this is a fake background. I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually on my uh, third house, third beach house. Yeah, you're in your third just... house and you're doing like yes. what a lot of the, the U.S. founders, we have also witnessed that, um, that in 21, especially a lot of the U.S. corporations, U.S. founders were able to get a good amount of money and then they've been living the life in Bora Bora or, you know, Hawaii, <laughs> yes. Jamaica. So, you know. Absolutely. When I say Brazil, I meant um, Swiss, Switzerland. Yes. Ah, no, okay, okay. That's how it is. That's how location. it is. <laughs> That's cool. Funny. And but then if we let's say a little bit, I want to take the conversation 
into the quality of education that you're able to offer and overall in Latin America. To give it a little context for this is that a lot of folks outside of Latin America, number one, there's very limited information and understanding outside of the negative press that they see. So then there's inherent bias and this perception of, let's say, bad quality, chaos, danger, which are evident on the basically the mainstream media that a lot of folks in Europe, Asia, Middle East, or the US consume. And there's a lot of confusion then also what happens and goes back into the quality of the technology companies and, and people working within those technology companies. And we've been witnessing this quite a bit. This question is that what is the quality of the people working within these companies, right? When they see the, for instance, we, we take a look, we have conversation with venture funds or family offices, angel investors all around the world. And when they look at the, some of the deals that are being offered from Latin America, they, they think that sometimes that how is it possible that the OPEX is so low? How can you pay your you know team that low salaries compared to what they've been used to see? Let's say you go to New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Austin, London, Amsterdam, Helsinki, Stockholm, whatever, right? So the question comes into, the thing comes into the quality that you are now trying to, to, to increase the level of education, that the people are going to be more sharp, they're going to be competent people for the workforce. What, what have you been seeing now in, in the couple of years that you've been in business is that, what are you working on this? What is the level of quality? How, where is it going? It's a humongous workload, right? Um, is the question, um, are, are thoughts on the overall caliber of talent you let them? I would say that, that there is a separate conversation what comes in that I think is pretty hyped in terms of the, the quality and level of the Latino entrepreneurs. Like Fede, you mentioned is, is already that you don't have access to the same amount of capital from day one. So you can't go just, you know, to Vegas and blow, blow some steam off. You have to be more frugal and you need to be, let's say, very creative. And that's why you have very successful entrepreneurs because you're, you just have to find the way. Like then, you know, with the podcast, I have to market that on over here. Um, but the quality of the employees, right? Yeah. So they, 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 the salaries are a lot lower. The education yeah. is very non-standardized. Let's say I grew up in a, in a bubbly Northern Europe where education is extremely standardized, no matter what is your socioeconomic background. And then you go further. Yes, you need to go through high school. You need to go into the, some you know, lifelong learning programs that you have in Abadi. What is the quality of the people that go through your programs, and 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 what are you seeing? That and, and are there huge deviations between countries where you operate? Well, Avari is in Brazil right now, but kind of like so, into this theme. Yeah, what is the quality of people that go through work? Like very high. You have great members, uh, great customers. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. That was like, a, of course, you have to say that. Of course, you have to say that. But we need to get a little, little comparison so, of global scale. If we, what I'll say is, if let's say I want to hire a VP of sales uh, and I'm running a company in the US, um, I start running a process to get more candidates and hire a VP of sales. I may get a thousand applicants, maybe. Absolutely, I'll be able to interview maybe a hundred of those. I'll get a bunch of VP of sales who've run the playbook before. They know the playbook. They've scaled other companies before. They're sharp. They're good. I'll have a lot of people to consider when making an offer. And maybe it's not 100 people if I want to hire an ML engineer. It's going to be a high, little, but that's sort of the ratio. Mm -hmm. If I want to hire a VP of sales in, in Brazil and I start running the process and I get 1,000 applicants, 
I'll be lucky if I can interview five of those or 10. Okay. It's just so much lower. Uh, so one, you have a very different breadth of experience. In the US, for example, startup world, you have a lot of people who've scaled companies from, you know, maybe series A to series B, from one to 10, from 10 to 100, from 100 to half a billion. You have fewer of those, but you have them. You have lots of CFOs who've taken public companies yeah. to the public. You just, you have people who've done those things. And we're only now, you know, starting to see the new banks of LATAM. So you just don't have people yeah. who've done that before. Plus the overall caliber is just lower. I don't know, people are just, yeah, it's just, you don't have, the caliber is not, it's not super high. Uh, for whatever reasons, we don't have to get into that, but it's just, it's harder to hire. Caliber is much lower. It feels like it's changing, feels like it's getting better, which is great, but it's still, you know, a far cry from hiring in the US or even in specific regions in, in other, in other, um, other specific uh, regions. But yeah, I think uh, definitely a challenge. Uh -oh. Yeah, I see pretty much the same. Um, but I think that in Latin America in the last few years, we've started to see what we call like the multiplier effect, mm -hmm. where all these Mercado uh, and first employees, they started their own VC firms, but they're also yeah. like the second, third, fourth level employees. They got all the experience of being part of those early days of all these companies, right? And what I see is that you have different type of employee or employees or or people around the around the Latin America, right? Probably Argentina and Brazil, since you have um, unicorns early uh, on our history. We have a lot of unicorns in Argentina uh, of the '90s, of the dot com bubble, right? And Brazil also have a lot of unicorns, so probably you see a lot of entrepreneur talent in Argentina and Brazil, and we are starting to see the same in Colombia, thanks to Rappi, and probably going to start to see the same uh, in Mexico after all the new unicorns that occur in, in that country. So all these multiplier effects starting to get like a snowball, uh, not yeah. only for founders, right, but also for your key employees. Because as Fabio was saying, they already went through the same process 10 years ago when they were at Mercado Libre, let's say, right? And now we have, I would say, of our 10 key management employees in, in Henry, probably they all got an experience before in, in tech, whether yeah. it's on Mercado Libre Globant or they already founded their previous company, education or other vertical, it doesn't care, but I don't care, but they already went through tech experience, right? Um, and the other thing is that I think we need to keep um, like letting people know that the future is technology, coding, yeah. whatever, uh, data science, data analytics, UX, UI, product. I don't care, but the future is going to be tech, right? And there are certain countries that since they didn't experience all this unicorn and all these economic growth thanks to tech, people all are thinking, okay, maybe the future is still being like the traditional companies, the incubators. So they are not um, studying courses, bootcamps, lifelong learning in tech because they haven't seen yet this high growth in, in tech companies, right? But we're starting to see this snowball effect to change year mm -hmm. after year. So I think it's really promising future for, for Latin America in terms of the talent we are creating. I 100% agree. There are just a couple of additional things there. Uh, we, it's, 
if you're hiring in the Bay Area and stock options are part of your total comp package, sure, people know what that is. You know, you have some people who don't, you know, we'll explain it to them, but like they get it pretty quick. Um, the notion of stock options or uh, the notion of, you know, holding an illiquid asset that eventually is going to uh, be worth more than you're going to exercise that stock option for is just so alien to like 99% of people in Latam that we barely even actually hand out stock options now for folks outside sort of executive level because it's just such a massive learning curve to educate folks on what that means, right? So the, the, it's just, we're a lot less mature as an ecosystem in terms of understanding the potential upside of some of these ventures and the things that we're working on. Um, it's not just an employee problem, largely. Uh, if you just look at the, at the quality and caliber of VCs, you know, them, it's just wild. It's getting better. Uh, so right now you have folks who maybe they started, um, they started a large company and, um, that's now public or they exited. Now they have a venture fund. Great. That's an entrepreneur. He's got experience. Incredible. But for like 15 years, folks running venture funds in Latam, their experience was like, maybe they worked in private equity for like two years. or they were like a McKinsey analyst for four years. And they're like running a fund, giving advice to founders. <laughs> That's insane. Whereas in the US, oh, they kept, they, oh, someone, you know, you look at, um, uh, top tier farms, folks, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, they invented Netscape. Great. That's obviously an incredible founder. Give, please give out advice. Uh, very different situation in Latam until very recent. So it's starting to change, but um, definitely a widespread, pro widespread problem, not just uh, uh, on, on the employee side. Absolutely. And then if we take a look now from, okay, this is about overall the quality of, of, of the employees and the general labor force little by little is improving and everywhere in the world we go through different cycles and, and now you're on this very upward cycle and the snowball effects are starting to take place on the mention on the on the because of the topics that fit in Fabio you mentioned. But then now if the current situation today, let's say coming as an outsider and exploring Latin America with very open eyes and trying to be as open as possible, um, it has become extremely evident in a very short amount of time in multiple different countries in Latin America is that people are very curious into what school you go to. Very. Talk, what I mean by this is that what university did you, did you go to? And you basically are placing that person into a box and category immediately based on that answer. Why? Because you, know, you have humongous income gaps within the societies of these countries. So then it's basically, you know, by if somebody went into a great university, you are able to very quickly analyze in your mind, the socioeconomic background of that person and through there, the education level, because there are so humongous gaps between, let's say, private schools and, and, and public schools within Latin America. And from there is like, the question goes into, because these realities exist, um, when people are coming into your life learning programs or they're coming to your boot camps, the companies, even though they're incumbents or they're startups, how are they perceiving the folks that are going through your programs? Has you, have you seen this issue? You have the labor data, right? You see where they're going and how they're performing. And do you see this as an issue or what is happening on these regards? Well, well when we talk with companies, we see that uh, more and more they're focusing on the skill set 
they have, how they interact with other peers. They're not um, looking specifically uh, which university did you go, right? Okay. Um, of course, there's something that happens. I think it's not only Latin America, right? You go to the U.S., okay, I went to Stanford, I went to the Harvard. Yeah, of course. And that also happens in, in the U.S., but it's something that happens also in, in Latin America. But I think that tech companies, startups, the big tech companies, they focus more on, on the skill set. And in in our case, in, in Henry, we have people from all of the backgrounds. We have people who went to the best universities in, in Latin America and people who didn't get the chance to, to go to university yeah. and they'll get hired at similar jobs. And all those companies come back to hire more Henrys, right? You have uh, nice. our ratio is every single company that hires a Henry end up hiring between two or three other comp other Henrys in the upcoming 12 months. So that talks about uh, the quality of our graduates. That's and pretty amazing, by the way. Yeah, it's it's amazing. There's a way we can ensure that the circle keeps running, right? Uh, it's still going, the program, and all the graduates we have, we have the companies from the other side to, to hire them. Um, and I think that's mainly because of the, the, the education we provide is focus on real projects and skills in skill in the game, right? Not only yeah. theory. And I think that's something that's going to take a little more time, probably in certain societies, a little more than in others. But once you start to see that the university doesn't get, it is not so important, but the skills they got is really more important, providing you more uh, output as a company. Uh, we're going to see this loop uh, changing even faster. Um, that's at least our experience from from Henry talking with with companies. Harder to comment since we're not super focused on the employability piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, people will go through a worry, but that's not the one thing they use when they're uh, True. they leverage when they're getting a job. So, but what we see may, maybe Eric is that people who had a um let's say high school or university where they got a really high English level, they got a chance to get hired for great companies in the US or Europe. And maybe people who didn't had the chance to to learn English, let's say, they have a little more uh, focus on getting a job on these Latin American countries that they usually pay you a smaller salary, right? Um, but that's the, the only difference. It's the English level, not the universities you want. And then basically from here is that how is your brand received? Okay, this is a very subjective and tough question, right? Just to give an example, Fabio, to you is that we've been introducing um, and, and interviewing some some developers to to hire into your team as well. And we, we see that people are putting, let's say on the LinkedIn on the top is like, you know, Soy Henry or Henry basically pops out. Uh, very clearly. So people who have graduated through the boot camps and being part of that ecosystem are relatively proud of that. In a similar manner, like all of us, we utilize LinkedIn. And when we look at our professional networks, right, we, everybody has school where they went or like ex-Google, ex-Apple, you know, try to show off a little bit and look, you know, better to the world. Um, it's part of the game. And what I witnessed right now here also in Latin America is very, very fascinating. Why the heck on earth it seems to me that so many people that go, oh, I scroll through LinkedIn and everybody's going to Harvard, MIT, Stanford. But then you scroll down on their feed, you actually say, oh, executive course, boom. And it's on the top of the list of their LinkedIn. 
I don't know if you realize this, but this is a very big thing that I've seen over here in Latin America. I think that everybody's going to a U.S. school, but it's not the reality. But now I see little by little also in the same category with Henry. So this is like, you know, I, I think it's pretty cool that actually the people who went through the boot camp and we're seeing that on the LinkedIn feed that we're promoting Henry are like, uh, Fabio, are you seeing that, you know, Avar is becoming, let's say, a brand name in a way that people are extremely yeah. proud to put there um, yeah. that could really enhance their capability, get higher paying jobs and, you know. Absolutely. Number one brand. Everyone loves it. <laughs> I think over no, I love it. I is... love it. Absolutely. Number one bad. You, you've been living in the U.S. for yes. way too long. Or, I, you know, it's just like, or you be, also like a combination. You sound like a combination of Argentinian and American who has been just <laughs> filled <funny>. with confidence. <laughs> um, on a more serious note, I think what we've seen is LinkedIn becoming more and more of a true social network, less of a professional network. So, so people yeah. will share more and more things to LinkedIn. And they'll really leverage LinkedIn um, as a as a as a tool for building their identity in the social professional world. So yeah. uh, what that means is people will share memes sometimes on LinkedIn. They'll share personal stories, but it also means they want a virtual signal. The same way you want a virtual signal on Instagram. You know, you 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 fly business class or you know you do a story on LinkedIn. They'll virtual signal by sharing a course certificate. Hey, I've mm -hmm. done a course on large language models. I've done a course on, you know, RLHF. I've done a course on something that maybe sounds relevant for their job. And we, our model specifically allows them to virtue signal very often because they can just sign up for as many courses as they want. They can get as many certificates yeah, yeah. as they want. And there's a, like a social share button they can click there. So we'll see people sharing our certificates very often. They'll definitely add this to their profile. I think that's more people wanting to virtue signal on a social network than some deeper education, behavior changing pattern ish. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is happening for sure. And again, number one grad. So people will say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fede. Yeah, I think that in education, the the brand in, in the long run is your most important asset, right? Stanford and Harvard are Stanford and Harvard because what they built for hundreds of years, right? Not only what they did in the last three, four, five years. So from day one, we focus on creating an outstanding education experience and an outstanding graduate for the companies who are hiring them because we understand that we cannot um, change education quality uh, in exchange of growth, right? And that's why we think that our business model is allowing us to have like what I think is one of the most uh, attractive brands in education in Latin America, because basically if we don't provide high quality education, they will never land up blind and landing a job and we will never get payback, right? So yeah. uh, our business model just all the time says, Focus on education quality, focus on your community, focus on the curriculum. Okay, now we have AI, change your curriculum, prompt engineer, give all the, the projects they need to practice, uh, bring the best mentors, the best tutors in the industry to the program. Because if you don't provide the best education, you will never get paid back and you will end up uh, without the growth you were expecting. So I think that the business model in our case is really an ally to us in, in terms of creating a strong brand. Because what we've seen is that when edtech companies break this first stage of seed or Series A, 
and they just focus on growth, what happens is they start providing uh, lower education experience or focusing, as Fabio was saying, more on the gamification aspects or mm -hmm. providing other aspects, not education, uh, because it's hard to scale. So I think that our business model is really an ally to us to keep uh, a strong brand in, in education. Fabio, in, in your platform, you know what, if I'm pronouncing that right, you have both options. You have basically, you can get into courses or then you have transition or career degree transition. Do you have any indication to our people actually signing up more to transition? Are we seeing people moving into tech more often or is it just saying, you know, I'm trying to get better at my job or I'm just, you know, I'm bored. I want to learn some Excel. Incredible question. Um, very good question. Um, I'd say the thing that makes people come to us is because they're somewhat uncomfortable in their current situation. Sometimes that's, I want to get out of my job and go, you know, maybe get a, a job in tech. Sometimes that's, a, I'm a product owner, I want to become a product manager. I'm a designer, I want to become a design manager. There's like some level of, um, there's, there's a goal that's triggering them coming to us. Uh, it's hard to come up with the number, but I would say over half of everyone who signs up is looking to get into tech. Um, mm -hmm. They might have a very relevant experience. They might be a graphic designer and they now want to become a UI designer for a tech company. But I'd say at least half of everyone who's a member of our community is looking to break into tech. Yeah. It was higher, I'd say, when tech was you know, flying very high and definitely... Fewer people are looking to get into tech now that every tech company is laying off people or going bankrupt. Um, that's obviously an exaggeration, but yeah. um, <laughs> um, it's uh, the the slightly graph. Yeah, <laughs> slight <laughs> exaggeration. Um, but I think the gravitas around tech is definitely um, lower now than it was maybe last year ish. But yeah, at least half of every, of our members are looking for a transition. No, in our side is one hundred percent because. They yeah, need to that, land a job why, in tech, that's basically. Why <laughs> that's why I didn't answer, right? <laughs> Our business yeah, that's model why I didn't ask. If you said less than 100%, I would have been shocked. But uh, <laughs> No, no. we. But, it's actually something we screen before they can get into the programs. Yeah. Uh, basically, all these admission programs and all these uh, models that we run on the admission process basically focus on, on what's the main objective and motivations and how we can actually check that what they're saying is actually what they are willing to do once they finish the, the project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my question came more because Brazil is a bit, a couple step forward in terms of tech uh, than the rest of Spanish speaking Latam. And what I wanted to understand Fabio as well is that are people still transitioning? So are they still coming from backgrounds that are not tech Absolutely. and are still trying to get into tech? You see, it's yeah. still a trend, even though Brazil is a couple steps forward than anywhere else in North America. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's uh, um, if you're in the US and you tell pretty much anyone, yeah, I work in tech, that sentence, I work in tech, carries a lot of, you know, it, um, you immediately think of tech companies and tech jobs and the tech ecosystem and thing that's happening, like it, it just carries a lot of meaning to everyone at a mainstream level, that's not the same in Brazil. So, um, yeah, absolutely not. It's, it's, um, there's a very old school. I mean, we very rarely 
especially in our circles, we don't really say IT, right? Or information technology. Like that's a very old school-ish way of describing the tech industry, like the IT world. Oh, it's fantastic. We go back to the golden age of Finland when we were talking <laughs> yes, about the right. IT wave of the 90s and Nokia, exactly. we, you know. It's still very common for people to use that term to describe tech in Brazil. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, you do IT? Got it. Sometimes I'll say working tech, like, what? IT? Oh, yeah, IT. Great. So that just means, you know, that there's like a lot of room for more brand awareness. One, one question here is then for education, we were discussing this a bit for brand, but there's also one key aspect, in my opinion, that is community. So, you know, sometimes people go to Stanford and Harvard, not only because of the brand, but the community that is formed over there. Do you guys see community as a core part of what you're offering? And are you doing anything to enable this to grow more than, than it is today? This is so hard. I'll let, if I go first, Heather, <laughs> this is very hard. Yeah. I mean, um, in our model, it's one of the main aspects of the model, <clears throat> the community. Basically, when you want to transition to tech so fast in a bootcamp of four to six months, you can get really frustrated, right? Because it's really hard. It's not for everyone. And you need peers going through the exact same thing uh, to you to get that um, same moment with them, right? Um, and it's really interesting because when we asked the first question, we asked students once they get into the bootcamp, say, why did you choose Henry among all the other options you have? And they say, well, basically because you offer me high quality education for zero option cost. And when we finished the program, we asked them the same question. Okay. Now that you went through the program, what would you say is the most important aspect of Henry? And they, 100% of the students say community. The community is the most important aspect. And probably that's the reason why, Eric, you were saying before, you go into LinkedIn and you're seeing a bunch of people saying, I went to Sohit, so Henry, I went to Henry and posting things about Henry. You get into Reddit and or YouTube, you see a lot of reviews about Henry. And if someone is saying, okay, I didn't like the bootcamp because of certain things. There are 200 comments. Okay, but this didn't happen that way. And, and it's like a community that's self-regulated, right? Uh, and it's a really central aspect of our model. And I think another interest, interesting KPI to measure is that even though that referrals from students or graduates are around 10 to 15%, of the students come or, or the applicants, they're over 50% of the new students because the person who referred that uh, applicant will help him through the education process. And it's like a really interesting um, community effects that is driving our growth in an organic way, uh, avoiding all these huge amounts of uh, investment in CAC. That's usually what... Um, it's the, the main, I would say, bottleneck for edtechs when they try to scale is that the CAC or, or the ROI, like CAC to lifetime value is really short because they need to invest a lot of money in the cost of acquisition. And the work we did with our community and how connected they feel with the brand is helping us to keep a really strong unit economics in the B2C business model because we didn't have to invest so much on the acquisition cost basic. Mm -hmm. So I think it's central to any um, company in education, but in any 
sector who's willing to to really scale the the, the solution. Um, I think it's hard because um, high value communities will usually filter on a very clear barrier. Um, in Stanford and Harvard, it's mostly um, your socioeconomical background, and you know to some extent, you know to a very little extent, maybe your IQ. But it's mostly your connections and how much money you have. Can you afford to go there? And like, are you sharp enough? Uh, you have YC, incredibly valuable. Again, it will filter for a number of factors, but there's a filter and there's a limit and there's a ceiling. There's an application process and um, they don't rely on scale uh, because it's hard for you to scale that level of exclusivity and filter, et cetera. Uh, whereas most ad techs or, or education brands, if you want to reach scale, you either charge more and eventually charge as much as maybe Harvard or Stanford will do, which none of us really want to, or you scale on volume and scaly high value communities on volume doesn't work because again, what makes a high quality community is a very clear barrier. I don't have a good answer on how to fix that. I don't think anyone does, but it's, it's tough, you know, and it's, it's really tough. And early on, it looks like things are going great because there's some level of, there's a filter in a way. But again, you want to be a public company, you want to be a multi-billion dollar stock or be a really large company. You're not in the hundreds of students. You're not in the low thousands. You're in the, you know, dozens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of students. Is there any single example of a high value community in the hundreds of thousands of people? No, it doesn't exist. Like that's that stuff. One approach is you create lots of sub communities. So maybe you have a really large student base. Within that student base, you have a really high value community for ML software engineers. And that's the approach that most people are taking. It feels like that's the approach with the most potential because you might have a lot of students. You only have some of those who are maybe FinTech software engineers and you have like the sub community for FinTech software engineers. That's the approach that we're sort of going towards. I think Harry's doing something similar. Um, beyond this, beyond niche, niches within your community and barriers within barriers, uh, there isn't much of an answer, right? But like, it's a tough problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Eric, and one more thing is really interesting what Pio was saying, because what we see is that it's not Henry you are linked to. It's linked to the 10 uh, peers that you went through the program. And those 10 peers are the ones creating the community. And then you have mm. like local communities, right? The Mexico, Henry, the Colombia, or even Bogota, Medellin, Henry, Buenos Aires, Rosario, Cordoba. You have like all the big cities. Some WhatsApp group and Discord creation creation that we didn't be part of. It created it was created and they are self-regulating as we were saying before, right? Uh, but everything starts from those ten first peer, not the thousand of students. So it's really interesting what Fario was saying. Absolutely, absolutely. And here, if we just go now, we've had a good amount of different themes and topics for today and and as a final theme that it would guide the conversation for Federico and Fabio, what's happening with your lives? You're grinding your way with the ups and downs of, of hustling through a company, trying to make it the number one brand, even though Fabio mentioned that they are the number one brand already, at That's least in right. Brazil. Um, so so what's popping with your lives? What, what will be happening? Are you still loving what you're doing? Or are you now only seeing the Benjamins, the, the $100 bills of your exit uh, and, and wishing to, to, to make something out of that and then moving actually into your fifth home, Fabio? 
or or what, what, what's going to happen? What what is what are you seeing for yourselves? I'm I'm trying to make it into the 2028 Olympics in uh -huh. rock climbing. That's that's so um I like number 10 in the ranking I think right now in Brazil. That's that's what I spent like half of my life on just rock climbing, competitive rock climbing. For real? My, that's amazing. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, it's real. That's, that that's a real amazing. That's a real, real goal. Thing. So. Yeah, I want to do the 2028 Olympics. That's uh, the other thing I'm, I'm very focused on. <laughs> Goodness, these superhumans coming out of Latin America. People in Europe, back at home, back in the U.S., back, you know, going into the Western world, so to speak. We need to get our things and, and start working. The people here are just absolutely machines. A rock climber going to the Olympics and building the number I mean, one I brand not, in Brazil. I'm, I'm, I'd say I'm far from it. I got to get a lot better and, and make it yet. So I don't have this spot secured. Uh, but I have, you know, six years till that happens or, or five years at least. But yeah, but that's that's like the side project. Yeah, a little side hustle. You know, a lot of <laughs> a little, little side hustle. People just, you know, start making T-shirts with, you know, nice little logos and giving that as corporate gifts as a side hustle. But or, you know, do anything, any form of drop shipping nowadays. But no, no, I'm just you know, aiming for Olympics. So Federico, an easy thing for you then. What are you doing with your life outside of Henry? Uh, I, I won't go to the Olympics for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I I'm waiting. I'm, I'm waiting for my first kid. Uh, so oh, okay, that is I'll a big, be, big I'll project. Become, yeah, big project. So I'll I'll be, become a parent in Congrats. forty-five days. Congratulations. Uh, and that's an insane, huge, and happy project, and it goes right next to 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 your startup. And it's it's crazy to be running both things at the same time. And I have two. To really interesting point of view from investors. I was talking with one of our board members the last week about this topic, and he told me, well, the, the only real moment that I burned out was when I was waiting for my first kid and go after the Series V. <laughs> so I was like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> nice, it's, nice. It's our company timing, and I'm waiting for my kid, so I'll try <laughs> to take take those, that advice to avoid the, the burnout. But the, the other interesting thing is that I was talking to one of the Argentina's unicorn founders, and he told me um, the interesting thing is that, of course, we see all these great examples of um, young entrepreneurs, 20-year-old guys from Silicon Valley who created Facebook. But when you analyze the numbers, then the mean or the normal thing is to find people on their middle age after one or two previous startups or other experiences, and probably they already have all the, their personal life uh, organized, let's say. They know they're going to live in the city. They're already married or they are already married or they have your families or whatever, and they can have really uh, focus on their startup, whatever, or their company, or they really know how much time they will okay, I have two hours, I'll be really efficient because I want to stay with my family. So it's a really interesting equation that he told me you're going to get in because you're going to get more efficient. And when you analyze the big uh, exits, probably the founders were in a certain stage of that uh, of that moment of their life and not on the 20s that they were probably uh, figuring out what they want to do about their life, right? Um, so it's really passionate about Henry as day one, but now I'm waiting for my kid and I 
Uh, so, so happy for it. So it's amazing. Oh, super cool. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining today and sharing a little bit of your stories, uh, what you're going through in with your companies and, and your personal lives and your overall thoughts about the market of what are we seeing here in Latin America, where it's heading. And as you have mentioned many, many times, there are still very many reasons to be extremely optimistic about the, the talent level of Latin America and, 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 and the snowball, snowball effect has only just begun, so to speak. Um, you and your companies are playing a pivotal role in order to make sure that, that, that the Latin American companies, also foreign companies, are going to be able to utilize the Latin American population um, because people are going to need more competent people and you're playing an integral role in that. So thanks a lot for joining today. Um, it was a pretty fun chat, at least in my opinion. Hopefully I'm not the only one. Really good conversation. Yeah, really good. This yeah. is fun. I'm, so, I'm sorry Thank my you questions very much. were uncomfortable sometimes. I'll, I'll try to say <laughs> no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. This was really fun.